This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tervish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern, followed by replays throughout the week. The purpose of my show is to explore how work will change in times of globalization and digitization. I want to understand the work of tomorrow. Now, for many young people, becoming a professional athlete is the biggest dream of their life. You don't have to be a global superstar like Serena Williams, Cristiano Ronaldo, or Usain Bolt. There are tens of thousands of professional athletes around the world. As an athlete, whether you're hitting tennis balls or running the 100-meter dash, chances are that your day is organized around a number of training sessions. You pump iron in the weight room, you stretch, you run, whatever you do. Being an athlete is a pretty sweaty profession. More recently, however, a new type of athlete is making headlines, and these are eSport competitors. For some eSports, like Madden or Fortnite, prize money has risen into the millions. Competitors build big stadiums, not to mention entire YouTube channels, and there exists an ongoing debate if eSports should be part of the next Olympics. Esports versus traditional sports, that is the topic of my show today. What does the life of a professional athlete look like? And how does it vary between the old world of blood and sweat and the new digital world of mouse clicks and YouTube followers? To help me explore this topic, I will be speaking to two wonderful guests. Uh, in the first half of the show, I will be talking to Eric Lorick, former NFL player who has played six seasons of professional football and is now a second-year Wharton MBA student. And then in the second half of the show, I will be talking to Michael Skimble, professional Madden player for Lazarus Esport, who has won three Madden Champion Series belts. At this point, welcome, Eric. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Hey, Eric, you're a second-year MBA student. What courses are you taking right now? Oh, good question. I'm just uh, getting used to school again, so it's at top of mind. Um, I just got out of an OIDD course by Eric Clemens, which is a very interesting class on new information systems and strategy. Um, I'm taking investment management, advanced corporate finance, um, and macroeconomics. What skills did you learn in the NFL that prepared you for business school? I, I, I read somewhere that you ran the 40 yards under like four seconds or so. Is, is that <laughs> helpful to get a good slot and a good, uh, good seat? You know, if I did that, I think I would have won a gold uh, Olympic medal. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't under four seconds in the 40. It was 4.7? Uh, yeah, it was, I think... Uh, I don't remember exactly. Yeah, it was roughly a 4.7, 4.6. was pretty good for a heavy guy. I think I was yeah. 280 at the time. 280 pounds. Yeah, yeah, LBs. So, um, yeah, but what was your question? Well, so we, we talked about the courses and how it prepared you for what the value of this now is at business school. Ah. There must be some more carryover than, other than fighting for a good seat, right? Oh, certainly. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of carryover, and I often think about this and even you know, setting up a new trajectory for careers and whatnot. But I think the first one that comes to mind is the commitment to discipline, right? Um, and the understanding that you know, besides the 1% of people in whatever field or talent that they're in, the rest of everyone else has to work pretty hard at their craft. So understanding the discipline and the amount of effort it takes just to maintain that discipline and the focus to develop a new skill and to be good at it is really important for anyone seeking new jobs or employment in a new industry. So that's one I think is probably the most mm. important that, that carried over. I read that you have a Stanford undergraduate studying uh -huh. 
technology policy. I found even more impressive that you got a master's degree at Stanford in the off season while you know you, you were not playing. Yeah, I did. That's right. I did undergraduate in public policy, which was economics and political science. Uh, it's a bit of a hybrid degree, which they do at Stanford. Mm. And then, yes, uh, there was a point in time where uh, I wasn't sure I was going to get drafted. And I started a master's degree, which was in a technology policy focus, uh, which I did. And so you mentioned, in some sense, the training of your body and the discipline that goes with it and the training of your mind. There is some similarity? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In the sense that when you're training any craft, whether it's the body to be at peak performance or peak health or the mind to be sharp as possible or um, have a good amount of duration, um, there's a lot of training that goes into that and a, and a commitment to um, making yourself better and having that perspective as you go forward in, in certain hours, days, work projects, uh, deliverables once you get to you know, a classroom setting or, or an office setting and making sure you're always working to get better. When uh, you were a professional player, you played six seasons of professional football. What did a typical workday look like? Yeah, so as a professional athlete, uh, it fluctuates a lot, actually, because when you're in season, which is roughly, um, you know, with games in mind, that's August to January, that's without playoffs. Um, so you're at six months with playoffs, you're at seven or eight, and then the rest of the time is considered off. Um, and that off is broken up into purely off from work entirely, don't have to check in. And the other half of that off season is checking in at the facility, but you're doing training and physical training and walkthroughs and uh, specific drill practice. Um, and so the year fluctuates between knowing what you're doing every single minute, every single day for about seven months, to suddenly being off for two months at your discretion, what you want to do. And then another two months where you're not on pads and practicing, but you're in getting better at very specific skills, uh, whether it be a new playbook or um, skill development at your position. So you mentioned like every single minute. So life yes. is pretty controlled as yes. far as diet, as far as time management, as far as health. There's basically always looking somebody over your shoulder. Yeah, uh, I would say in college that that was more true. Once you get the NFL, um, that that's a little bit less because what ultimately is the gatekeeper of the NFL is performance. And the people who make it to that level have already more or less proven that they, they can do that on their own. And so if you simply don't do that at the professional level, you get fired and you do it so very quickly. Um, there's a certain amount of security with guaranteed contracts, but as you know, there are no such thing as guaranteed co contracts in the NFL. To a certain extent, there are with signing bonuses and contract guarantees, but ultimately, your the merit of the NFL player is whether they produce. And if you do, you stay. If you don't, you leave. Pay for performance. You pay for performance. That's right. So in the NFL or, or the NBA, NBA, everybody talks about money and uh, the players' multi-million dollar salaries are, are in the news and oftentimes public knowledge. Would you have played professional football for the love of the game? I think I would have. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, and it's something that started very early on as a youngster. Mm -hmm. uh, I started playing when I was 13 or 14. And as I progressed through the game, it wasn't so much the game itself that drew me in, but a lot of the challenges around it. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, proving to yourself you can do better than what you did yesterday. Um, having a goal in mind and meeting that goal. And then, of course, one that's very important in football because of the brutality of it and the amount of diversity and, in, say, injuries or in the amount of competition there is, is overcoming the adversity. That becomes the three games within that game in itself. 
So when you say 13 or 14 years old, you started as a freshman in high school? Exactly, yeah. I played all sports growing up. I played soccer, baseball, basketball, and I was becoming good and also taller. And the football coach at my local high school started to recruit me over to play football. Uh, my parents didn't play any sports, so they kind of let the process take over. And once I did, after a year or two of about a learning curve, I, I, I excelled pretty quickly and then entered the, the sort of national recruiting circuit that is in the United States. And that goes then into the college area? Yeah. So from college you were drafted, after college you were drafted to temper initially? Exactly. So if you could think of it um, this way, there's, there's three stages to go from a, you know, a Pop Warner player, they call it, to professional. So in high school you play. And the, all the universities that have Division One, two or three programs in the country are able to start scouting you, which they spend a lot of money on doing, but, by the way. Um, and then once they've been, you've been signaled as a top performer, you'll earn a scholarship to a certain school. Some schools require that you actually get into the school first, like Stanford, Notre Dame, the Ivy Leagues, and a few others. So once you get into those schools, then they'll extend you a scholarship. And then from there... There becomes the relationship between the NCAA, college football, and the NFL. The NFL scouts players through the NCAA and college football programs. If you're able to continue to accelerate and get better by standing out, then you might have the chance to get drafted, and then you're finally a professional. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I have the pleasure of checking with, uh, chatting with Eric Lorick, who is a seasoned uh, professional football player and now a second-year Wharton MBA student. And we're talking right now about the work of an athlete, a professional athlete. In the second half of the show, we talk about the professional roles of an electronic athlete, so to say, an athlete active in esports. Uh, Eric and I were just kind of chatting through his career from, you know, 13, 14-year-old kid towards playing professional sports. Um, when you were playing professionally, were you feeling, in, in, in some sense, you were a part of a big machine? Heck, even I, as a Wharton School professor, I, I sometimes feel like a little machine in a, in a big organization, right? I mean, I, I, I have to teach students. I have there are the papers to be written. I mean, we're all part of a bigger system, something that I guess that's not a bad thing. Did, did you feel like something that your team invested in money and you were now like a little machine or robot? Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. I think, I think early on I felt that more as I was trying to prove myself as a professional in the league. Um, you are a part of a, you know, a multi-billion dollar business that, that's much larger than, than you as the individual worker. Um, but with, with that being said, um, you operate as um, sort of like a, a solo merchant, <laughs> yet you have to operate within the team context because you can't do your job literally without the other people when you're performing it. So while there's an independent sense of uh, you know, your job, it's very important to embrace the team. Otherwise, you cannot do your job well, and then you won't be around. And uh, to help you with the non-athletic part of your life, you had a personal agent, you had a lawyer you had, who helped negotiate these kind of contracts, sponsoring deals and other things. Yeah, so for the professional part, yeah, I had an agent, which, mm -hmm. you know, is, was, was, is a lawyer, um, and, and, that con and that agent will help carry out uh, deal negotiations, the appearances, and, and also the good ones will, will be... Um, good advisors. Uh, they'll give you good advice in certain situations. Uh, and the one I picked had been around for a long time, and 
that certainly was true as my career progressed. Now that you have taken Wharton courses on maybe negotiations, information system economics, we just talked about advanced corporate finance valuation, uh, what would you have done differently? <laughs> With the luxury of hindsight, which might be a mean question. But. Yeah, no, no, it's a good question. And the way I'm thinking about that is uh, early on in my career, I, I focused on being good at everything rather than being excellent at, at one thing. And so in the NFL, that's very valuable because there's a limit on how many players can be on the roster. And so what that means is, let's say in college, 100 people were allowed to be on the team. So you had plenty of human capital to do different jobs. The NFL, that's cut down to 50%. So you have to have players that are either excellent at one and all they do is that job, or you have the other majority of players who have to do everything on the field, lots of different tasks. And so what that implies is that those players that are excellent at one imply, you know, in, in greater contracts. They're more valuable. Mm. And the ones that can sort of do everything are, you know, sort of um, on the average. And so they might not command as, as higher of a premium. So I think leading into my NFL career, I might have focused more on getting excellent at one thing, one skill in the game rather than trying to be good at everything. That sounds like very much an insight out of a competitive strategy course. Right? <laughs> I mean, like focus on something, get your competitive advantage. Uh, Nikolai Sigelko kind of, I, I don't know if you're taking competitive strategy, but it, it has a very good course. I mean, Nikolai is, is one of our top teachers here at Warden. Um, but very interesting observation. Uh, speaking about that uh, kind of that being like uh, an asset for your, your organization, something that your team invested in, I remember once uh, working with a chiropractor who was supporting pro baseball and pro football teams. And he mentioned that in baseball, the, it's all about keeping the players healthy in the long run versus in football, it's all about getting the players ready for the next game. Is there a little bit like a incentive disalignment between the player who is in this for the long run and the team that needs to win the match on Sunday? I, yeah, I think I, I understand what you're saying, which is um, there's the player's side who's looking to uh, make his his career as long as possible and in order to do so, maintain his or her health. And then you're saying from the team perspective, they're not concerned with your long term. They just want you um, on a week-to-week -week basis. I will say that's mostly true in the NFL. And it, and it falls, even though that culture is changing a little bit, especially over the last 10 years, I think the NFL has taken some actionable um, moves to increase player safety. And I think that's that's been present it's part of evident. The whole concussion movement. Not and, just concussion movement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not just concussion, but also any uh, you know, physical, chronic, uh, just, you know. A brutality that, that, mm. that the sport requires. I think by limiting contacts, uh, contact and practice, and limiting the amount of practices you can have, the amount of hours on the field, these all do add to that to that um, player longevity. Um, but once you get to the game and you have only a certain amount of players on the team, yes, that becomes a very important um, uh, perspective for the team to take, which is we need you ready week to week to week. Um, which is true for any player that's on the team. There's not that many of them. And it, it's on the player increasingly and a responsibility on the player to, to maintain his health and to maintain that. They have to take that on themselves, and it makes a difference, I can tell you, from my own experience. So talking about now the the good and the old world and the new world, I mean, in no way implying that professional sports in the old way would go away, but the physical world, let's say, and the digital world, um, 
how do you look how do you look at the game like Madden? I mean, so you probably had a, uh, a, a there was probably or there is probably a Madden character on the screen that is you. Yeah, that's right. How do you like him? Uh, you know, he was I, the the Madden character on there. I remember was below average, but I wasn't surprised. <laughs> yeah, always below average, uh, kind of under the radar. But uh, I I I I think I, I understand. <laughs> do you do you remember the day you were digitized, so to say? Was it somebody you know what? with it a camera? It started in college, believe oh, it or not. Yeah, and that's course. a whole other uh, yeah. show topic to talk yeah. about, the, the amount of money the NCAA yeah. makes off of collegiate, yeah. quote, student-athletes. And we could go into that as well. But that game came out when I was 18 or 19 years old mm -hmm. without any of uh, any royalties paid to me, uh, without any uh, permission given by me. Um, you know, so seeing that at 18 yeah. or 19 was pretty interesting and revealing of what the sports business world is like here in the United States. And so how, how did it happen? And I mean, so there's the money part, which we, we can also talk about, but I'm just kind of curious about just the technology part, right? So that one day somebody comes with a set of cameras and says like, Eric, run down the line and they would, would film your movement or was it like a generic character and then they just took your face and photoshopped it on the player? Yeah, no, I think at the time, yeah, it, it wasn't as specific as that. I think they were, you know, doing you know, low-grade CGI. I, I, don't, I don't think it was that fancy. Now I've seen it's a whole nother I mean, level. They, they do amazing yeah. stuff, right? I mean, again, yeah. I mean, with all due respect, I, I think they do this more for Cristiano Ronaldo. For there, sure. Right? But, as but, they should, yeah. <laughs> but um, then um, in terms of uh, experiencing the, the Madden product, were you and, and, and friends that you had on, on the team, so elsewhere in either Stanford days or in your NFL days, did, did you guys play Madden for entertainment, for the fun of it, to ridicule each other? I mean, is, yeah. this, is, this, is this something that you use? I'll say the most the most popular game of all those years of, of college and pro was actually FIFA. Oh, yeah, I love FIFA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. FIFA was the most popular. Yeah. But but Madden and, and NCAA was also played a lot. People mm. would care about their rating. People would play competitively. I've never been a gamer uh, I've only sort of seen it, maybe picked up a controller once or twice, uh, you know, but it, it, it is something that is a, a common topic in locker rooms. And so now that you think about the business aspect of this more, um, what is the relationship between the eSport world and the business world? So one thing that you were starting to get into, which I, I think is fascinating, is, of course, a royalty element that esports are another way of getting eyeballs and engagement with a brand or a product and thus creates additional revenues. What, what other kind of interactions do you th see between the kind of the, the old and the new? Well, I think you can talk about fantasy football. Yeah. Um, and, and that's an interesting conversation, uh, whether it's a revenue generating or it's about engagement. You know, mm. I'm not really sure uh, how that segment works because I know the NFL has um, official platforms, but there's a lot of you know, sub-industries that, that have created platforms out of it, too. I think one thing that's indisputable is that it increases engagement, especially with the changing consumer population that's very mobile phone-oriented. Um, and mobile-oriented in terms of screens. They want more information. They want more games and more stats. And I think fantasy football matches that, that new uh, attention span, uh, if you will. Um, and it's, it seems to be working. And, and I know uh, from conversations I've had with NFL executives that 
the common conversation is how do we reach, how do we please more millennials and, and the next generation? How do we match what they're looking for with our product? And I think you see a lot of that in how they broadcast shows now. You know, sort of that original direct TV way they used to broadcast is the red zone. You know, anytime there's action stats going on in the game, they'll they'll switch to those. And now you watch a game or a broadcast, and there's I was watching an air, a games last night uh, at the airport. I was on my way back to Philly, and in five minutes, I watched 10 games, you know, and I think that's the way it's changing. So it is basically just looking for that one moment and everything gets cut into 10 seconds bites. Yeah, and the games, the product, the NFL product, which is games, isn't local anymore, right? It's not just stadium tickets. It's not uh, concessions uh, here in Philly at the stadium. Uh, you have uh, definitely a national interest in all teams, for the stats, for the players, um, and they're always trying to grow it internationally. We've seen that over, from the NFL over the last 20 years. I think starting with the European Football mm. League. Do you remember that? They played out of Germany, Great yeah, Britain, and the Netherlands. Yeah. That's since collapsed, but they're always increasing. Uh, I played a game in London once because mm -hmm. our owners mm -hmm. at Tampa Bay, where I spent my first four years, the Glazers own Manchester United. So they're trying to push exposure out to the, you know, the closest countries, Mexico and London. And they're still trying to do that. So when you were a player, how did you as a product of, 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 your, of your team, if you will, how did you act, interact with the fans? Is that something where you just kind of wave on, on television? Is there something where you can become, get, get real interactions? Is this a social media game? Yeah. I, at the time I was playing, there was definitely a social media game. And that's, that's what you asked me earlier. That's one thing I would have done differently, too, is more of increased my engagement with with fans that way because i was you know really a middle class player if you will uh, you know i wasn't famous you know i wasn't well known uh but i was a player that was in every game and was obviously working quite a bit to make the team better uh you know but wasn't you know catching five touchdowns a game or throwing them or running for hundreds of yards so one way to increase that engagement would have been through social media What I did was engage more after practice, during games, you know, autographs, conversation, radio shows. I think old, older school stuff. <laughs> older school older stuff, school just, stuff. Just, yeah. just like me. Just well, I was an old school player, yeah. 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 So let's use the last couple of minutes thinking about the future here of, of both the professional sports and how and how it will not interact or be disrupted by, by, by the esports. What do you expect professional football to look like in five years from now? It's a good question. And before I answer, it's important to understand in the game of American football, it's constantly evolving. Every year there are rule changes. If you look back and compare football today to 1960, it looks drastically different. So it's an ever-changing game, unlike that of what I've seen out of baseball, basketball, and, and soccer. And so I think what you're going to see is a continual evolution into more stats, better offenses, um, higher speed, um, just more excitement. I think that's what the NFL is trying to do and working with the, you know, the health element of it, which is present now, but also working forwardly in the you know, stats world. I think all uh, fans want more stats, more excitement, uh, you know, more stimulation. And so you're going to see uh, plays and you're going to see new rules that are set up to increase the opportunity to throw touchdowns, to get, to get uh, more yardage and to contain the physical element a little bit more just for the safety, but also 
contain it so that the offense can do more exciting things. So how did you experience this? I mean, we at Wharton, we, we proud ourselves to be the, the school of, of, of data analytics. Um, and so clearly, as, as you mentioned, in, in many sports, baseball, football, heck, tennis was a U.S. Open these days. You see lots of stats every time. How did your coaches weave in data when mm. they were telling you in huddles of what the next move should be? Were there like success probabilities that were derived on past data or were those things happening maybe in the brain of the coach but never made explicit to you as players? Oh, no, it is very explicit. And what a lot of people don't know is how many hours are actually invested in inside of an office um, leading up to a game. Uh, so in the NFL, it's probably the most extreme example, which is you know, 30% of my time, let's say 40% of my time during the season was on the field actually practicing a really small amount. 60% of that time was inside of a room analyzing mm -hmm. Um, the game, the, the the team you're about to play, or analyzing yourself in the practice. And in terms of analytics, these are very present and have been around the NFL for more than a decade, two decades. I mean, this is part of the game. And what they do is break down opponents, going say um, one game back to five games back to f years back. Sometimes, I mean, so at some point there's a limit. But what they do is find tendencies. So if I'm an if I'm an offense and I'm facing a defense, then our offensive staff is going to load us with analytics to give us some sort of um, sense of what the defense might do in a game. And what I, mean, I mean by the analytics is tendencies. So, you know, it's the first quarter. The offense has the ball on, on our 20-yard line, and, um, you know, it's the beginning of the game. All right, here's the tendency of this defense and this defensive coordinator that calls the shots. He loves this blitz from this size, or he loves running this defense and the scheme in the in the first quarter of this game here's a percentage of how many times they've done it this year here's a percentage of how many times they've done it last year here's the blitz they like to run following this play and so you see a lot of tips you see a lot of analytics around percentages and you see some um, tendency on that of the players as well so in the nfl or in football there's multiple layers that you have to analyze the coaches the strategy, and then the player themselves. What do they like to do? That's, that's what I think about. I have to study the player. What does he like to do in this situation? If he's going to come and blitz, if he's going to come run this move on me, does he show it? Does he signal it? Is it with his left foot by one inch or his right foot by one inch? I have to know that because the game at that level is so competitive, mm -hmm. it's so fine. Those edges is what makes you as a player because the talent is pretty uniform in the NFL. The system's set up that way. Eric, last question now. Back to you here at Wharton. You will graduate next May. What are you looking forward to in your career? Uh, you know, I, I'm looking forward to conti you know, continued growth. Uh, you know, when I, well, coming out of the football, uh, I didn't realize it, but you spend a lot of time growing, but you don't think about it because you're constantly having to prove yourself you're the best in order to stay around. But what I found in the business world is that everybody is growing, and that trajectory is not for you know, a short 10-year career. It's it's a lifetime. Uh, and so getting comfortable with growing in new ways and understanding that it's it's not a five-year all-out um, hustle, you know, to grow, but it's a really a lifetime and a new career to grow. Wise words from Eric Lorick, a former NFL player and now a Wharton MBA student. Thank you so much, Eric. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.